John's Gospel, chapter 4. Now, this woman at the well, <clears throat> excuse me, we looked at it last week, and if you remember, I brought you on a bit of a tour. We're going to do something else as well tonight. Because when Jesus mentions here about worship, the whole situation of worship is going to change, he says. And so he meets this woman in Samaria at the well, and we have looked a little at her, her background. But there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little thing I want to show you, God willing, as our meeting progresses. When we're reading here, if you notice here, um, John 4, and just for time's sake, go to verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria. Notice the region, Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, were years ago. And they were taken away captive by the Assyrians. Now, what we'll look and see is that, that area was actually repopulated with non-Israelites. But we'll look at it in a moment. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew or a Judaite, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Notice, they hated each other. For if the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Then answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Notice she calls him our father Jacob. Which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And him whom, whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Notice our fathers worshipped. Our father Jacob, now our fathers. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers, notice there's true worshippers now, the true worshippers, that's neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem. Know that. Jesus said that. The true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit, in their spirit, and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now I notice what the Lord says to her. 
he says there's an hour coming and actually it is now. It's approaching fast, but it's from now. It's starting to envelop, starting to uh, spread itself out, as it were, starting to unravel itself and be revealed that you'll not go to Jerusalem to worship and you won't be up this mountain to worship either. Turn with me to Second Kings 17. I just want to answer uh, maybe a little query of this woman. Now, maybe this woman was an Israelite who had escaped because there was a, a tithe, a tenth, if you want, of Israelites of the northern kingdom at the time of their deportation in around 721 BC, who had escaped and Hezekiah sends a letter up to say, come down to Jerusalem to worship. And it says that divers of a various of Asher comes down, who, were, who had escaped the captivity. So she may be related to one of those who had escaped the captivity. But when you go to Second Kings chapter 17, so let's just read from verse, just for time's sake, because it's a lot of reading. Verse 23. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. That is the northern kingdom he's speaking of here. That is the ten tribes in the north. The Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now this is important. Let's really study here for a moment. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Eva and from Hamath and from Sepharavim and placed them in the cities, notice, of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So what happened was they repopulated the land where they took the northern kingdom of the house of Israel out of. So they started repopulating it with all sorts of heathen idolatrous worship. So now, let's follow it on down. Do you see what happens next? Verse 25, And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lands among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the hand the, pardon me, the manner of the God of the land. So now they're realizing, hold on, this is God's land. He's now They've now removed Israel, God's God's family, God's people, God's nation. Judah, the southern kingdom, is still there in Jerusalem. So the derivative name for in a later text is, is Jews. That's where you get the name Jew from. But the northern kingdom are gone. They have taken all these people from all these lands whom they have conquered and replaced them into this place. But now everything's going wrong for them. And so they're saying, hold on, there's something about this land. And and the people are being attacked. They don't know anything about the God of this land. So now notice what happens. Verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded and saying, carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from thence and let them go and dwell there and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. 
Then one of the priests, whom they carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord, howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima. Now when you go on down there, look at verse 32. They, so they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high place. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. Notice that. After the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence, unto this day they do after the former manners, they fear not the Lord, that is Yahweh, Neither do they after their statutes or, or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them saying you shall not fear other gods nor bow yourselves to them nor save them nor sacrifice to them. Now notice what's happening. Worship has taken another turn. The house of Israel were carried away because they had apostatized from the truth of worshiping Yahweh. So now they're carried away. Other people are now put in and populated. They bring all their own gods. When their own gods come into the land, things start to happen. The God off the land, that is Yahweh, is unhappy. Of course, then they say, get someone to teach us the ways of the God of the land. And so they send a priest down who was from the house of Israel. But what they're not realizing is the priest of the house of Israel was corrupt. That's why they were taken away. So there was no truth. They had no truth. It just got worse and it gets worse. So they start to mingle. They start to mix. And what you have is not only a mixture of multiculturalism, but you have multi-faith. Remember last week we looked at this. When we are now worshipping, whether it was in the Old Testament, in Israel in the Old Testament, or whether it's us in the New Covenant, do you remember we looked at how we must come with a direct form of worship. The Bible tells us in the New Covenants through Christ himself, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so how we must direct our worship to Christ alone, so it must be by grace alone, through faith alone. Isn't that right? That's according to Scripture alone, sola scriptura. It's sola Christos, by Christ alone. And of course it's sola Deo Gloria, giving glory to God alone. So it matters, okay? It matters how we worship. It matters where we worship. It's very, very evident in today, uh, today's world. All these things, we're going to get together and worship and ecumenize. And, and whether you, if you put a label of Christian on, well, that's good enough. That's not what the scripture says. One mongrelized version of worship will mongrelize everything else. That's worship of the Jews. That's what you're hearing. But yet Judaism, really, if you put it in line with Christianity... It is the opposite poles. Poles apart. 
Hey, the, 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 the forms of Judaism has been uh, rebuffed throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus tells us about the temple to come down in AD 70. And that worship must be in and through him alone. We're told about Chrislam, Christianity and Islam. Now it's, will we worship the one true God then? That's not, but that isn't right. That's not true. The God of Jacob and the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the God of Israel, the, our God, is not the God of Islam. And then in the church circle, we're told, well, we can ecumenize and we can, we can set our foot into Rome. But it matters how we worship. Jesus at the, to the woman in the well says this. He says, you don't know what you worship. At least at this point, the temple is still standing, even though it was filled with lies, filled with men's commandments and not God's. Filled with Babylonianism and Babylonian Talmudic uh, worship, even though it was filled with it, yet still the sacrifice was still going on. But we know what we worship in the sense from Judah, the true Judahite knew. And when it comes to this, he now meets this woman. He says, "There's going to come a time when you're not going to worship up that mountain, and you're not going to worship down in Jerusalem. You're going to worship in the spirit." In the spirit. So, when he's speaking to this woman, now we get an idea of the background of this woman when we read Second Kings chapter seventeen. That's the sort of people who had populated the area. That's the sort of ungodliness that was there. So she sent our father Jacob. You know why? Either or, she was one of the. She was an Israelite who had been living in Samaria, who had kept herself pure. And worship the living God. But then she says, we go up the mountain to worship. So she couldn't have kept her religious um, fervor or worship pure. Because she went up the mountain. They had little groves, little statues up the mountain. They went up to worship in a clump of trees. They would have worshipped in there. And so Jesus says, this isn't going to be the worship from here on in. He says, from now, you're going to see the difference. So whenever he's speaking to her at the well, give me the drink, he says, if you already knew who I was, you'd have worshipped me. Basically, that's what he's saying. If you knew who it was that asked you to give him the drink, he says, I'd have filled you full of living water. You'd have worshipped me with that living water. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit and worshipping in the Holy Spirit will always elevate Christ. I know we, me as a Pentecostal, would always, you always hear people saying, oh, we're, we're seeking the Holy Spirit. And look, and that's the term that we use. But really, that isn't the right term to use. Seek Christ. And He will give you the Holy Spirit. You seek Christ. So when this man, uh, pardon me, the Lord is speaking to this woman, Look at John chapter 4. She starts to have her eyes open. Verse 19, the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. (laughs) Now that's not enough. 
brothers and sisters, that's not enough. Peter, Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now there's the difference. You're the Messiah. In other words, you are God himself in flesh. But a prophet, I see Islam say, Isis, or Isis, or Isa, pardon me, is what they call Jesus. That he was a prophet, and they elevate him to a prophet, as it were. But the the Isa they worship and the Isis, or the Jesus who we worship, are two different things altogether, people. The prophet that they say whom he is, didn't die on the on the cross for our sins. So then that meant there was no bodily resurrection because he didn't die in the first place. He wasn't deity clothed in humanity. He wasn't the son of God and the son of man. But yet people want to say, well, let's worship together. You see, it matters who we worship with. It matters. You could be in the same room worshiping with someone. They're saying, well, we'll call an Allah. We believe he's called God. We just call him Allah. I, I was at a meeting with, let's just say, a, a, a room full of Pentecostal ministers from a certain place. And somebody came over from England from the same Pentecostal group and started telling us how in England these Muslims were getting saved. We were going, well, isn't that fantastic? Then they said, but don't be surprised because they call on Allah, but they're only calling God while you're praying in the name of Jesus. Well, they had to take a quick seat because there was an uproar. Notice, it matters because you could be praying directly to the Father, directly through his Son, as the Scripture says, and yet someone beside you could be going zigzagging their way through, as it were, although they can't, it's, it's a fallacy, but zigzagging their way through to try to get the glory through the saints and Mary. It's impossible. It matters who we worship with. It matters how we worship, and it matters where we worship, and it matters who we worship with. It matters who we worship himself, Christ. So this woman, speaking to the Lord, says, you're a prophet, but that's not enough. But by the time she has closed this portion or dialogue with him at the well, in verse 25, the woman said unto him, I know. Notice, I know. Now the term there, I know, isn't just, well, I've got an idea in my head, so I know it. The idea here is, is, it's like Paul says, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It's the same terms here. She's now facing Christ, and she's saying, I know. The term is, I have come to the knowledge through the experience. She's experienced Christ before. See, now this is where worship comes from. And this is where worship must be pointed to. Do you see a man or a woman who's experienced Christ? Now we call our place Christ Encounters Tabernacle because we want people to encounter Christ. It's as simple as that. That's what the name's for. Because it's through him, for him, by him, and to him. And then none others. And none other, pardon me. And, and this woman realizes, she says, Now I know I've experienced you. I've encountered you. 
She says, thou art the Christ. Thou art Messiah, she says. You're the Messiah. Notice, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. Notice what Jesus answers her. And, it, and you know, we hear people saying, Jesus nowhere mentions his deity. Well, that's not true. The next verse, verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. What is Jesus saying there? I am Christ. I am Messiah. I am from heaven. That's what he's saying. I'm the one from heaven. Um, the, the, he is an italic, so he's saying, he's saying here, I that speak unto the arm. The I am, he says. Look, Moses, take your shoes from off your feet for the place will now stand on his holy ground. Moses said, Moses, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to stand before Pharaoh. And Moses says, when the children of Israel ask, who are you? Who sent you? What will I say? What's his name? I am that I am have sent thee. Jesus was the one speaking through the burning bush. Now he says, I'm in flesh before you. I that speaketh unto thee am. He's the I am. That's what he's saying here. So it matters. That's why worship must be to him and through him. For within him the deity is the deity of the Father. Notice here as well. She goes into the town and verse 29, listen to what she says to the people in the town. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? So she's saying, Messiah or Christ comes, he's going to tell us everything. He says, I'm he. She goes, come see a man that told me everything I did. So what she's saying is, I've found Messiah. Or rather, Messiah has found me. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. The Christ of God has found me. And that's the way salvation works, isn't it? He comes to us where we can't go to him. And so when this woman is saying this, notice here what she says in verse 29. Come, here's the invitation. See a man. That's what they'll look upon. A man. And that's all people see. A man. A prophet. That's all they can see. They're blind. They're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. But come as the invitation. See a man is what they'll behold, which told me all things that ever I did. Now notice what she says. Is not this the Christ? She doesn't say, this is the Christ. She doesn't say, this is the Christ. She says, is this not him? Now you need to find out for yourself. That's what she's saying. We're inviting you to come to look at this one. Fight and you'll find out for yourself. Now it's from there is the basis of worship. Can you see that? It's from there is the basis of worship. She didn't invite him back up the mountain. See, from now on, he's saying, you're not going up the mountain again, dear. Jerusalem's going to be finished soon. The temple there's going to be ruined. He says, I'm telling you now from here, Next thing she sees him, you're a prophet, not enough. You're the Messiah, I am. And then she starts to evangelize. Imagine the Lord using a woman who's had five husbands, she's with number six. And the Lord says, you know what, I forgive you and you're going to have 
an evangelistic spirit about you. There's more grace in Christ than there is in most Christians, isn't it? Isn't it really? More grace in him. Thank God for his grace. Notice this. So going back to the dialogue, in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Notice, our fathers worshipped past tense. So she's speaking in past tense, bringing it right up to their conversation. That's where false worship should finish in the past. You see, when people say, oh, I've got saved, or I've met, I've met the Lord, or whatever way you want to term it. I've had this encounter with Christ. See, everything you knew from the past, that's where it should stay. Everything must stay. You're a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They worshipped up here. This is where I went. He says, no, from now on. He says, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to open your eyes. Now, when you go on, he says, it says, or she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Here's present worship is going on in Jerusalem. So past worship, now present worship is going on in Jerusalem, even though it's apostate. So they're contrasting, if you remember what I said, the mountain where they were in Samaria uh, would have been Mount Gerizim. And Mount Ebal was the other one. Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. The other one was the Mount of Cursing. And that had been in the valley. And here's, here's the decision for people. Is it the Mount of Blessing or Cursing? I think we all want the Mountain of Blessing. So we tend to then go on pilgrimage. Whatever religion it is, whatever denomination it is, there's all sorts of pilgrimage goes on. And listen, there's people who go to pilgrimage still to Jerusalem, to the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall isn't even a proper wall in the temple. It wasn't one of the original walls. It's just a retaining wall. If it is uh, that Wailing Wall, if that is, then Jesus got it wrong. For he says, one stone shall not be left upon another in his temple. It wasn't even there. It was a retaining wall. It's not even the temple wall. And, and what we must be careful of here is this. People turn and they look at the bones and the relics of, of, of saints that the Church of Rome use. And they look at it and they say, well, how idolatrous that is. And it is. But what about when we look at Islam and we look, look at the, the cube that is in, in, in Mecca? And I'm walking around it and around it and around it. The Adama cube, I think it's pronouncing. And they walk around it and they're millions. They're tracking pilgrimage up Patrick Mountain for the Catholics. No, and all of this happens. We go, oh, you dollarless and silly that is. Well, here, listen. And I'm not trying to offend anyone, but this is the truth. How silly is it to go and, and put a note in a wall thinking God reads it? Because it's in Jerusalem. That's idolatrous. Jesus says here, you will not go to Jerusalem to worship. Didn't he say it? It's in the scriptures. Don't go to Jerusalem to worship. It's finished. So notice what he says here. 
Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship, neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is off the Jews. In other words, they had the, they had the, 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 the scrolls still. They had the scrolls. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers. Do you notice between Jerusalem and Gerizim? Do you notice that between Samaria and Jerusalem? These are the two capital cities of Israel. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Judah, their capital city was Jerusalem and, and the house of Israel, was, as I said, was Samaria. Now he's looking at these mountains representing them and he's saying, can you see? It's going to be finished. It's no longer there. There's going to be a new temple built. What would be the temple? The third one that's to come? No. It's the temple which is his body. The temple of you and me, the living stones. That's what it is. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice. The true worshippers. Jesus said that. Let's just pause a minute. Jesus says there's true worshippers and there's false worshippers. <laughs> the idea is that man can worship around the world. You can worship in your bedroom. If you're like me, you can worship in the car. You can worship in the park. You can worship in your garden. You can worship standing at a coffin. You can worship at the word being preached. Your heart worships him. Hear the word. Your heart worships him. You can worship at a hospital bedside. worship in the street you can worship as we gather together you see the idea here is, is the worship of God's people it matters who we worship how we worship where we worship we can worship everywhere everywhere yes. but they couldn't do it before this even in Israel in the Old Testament, could only worship at the tabernacle and then at the temple. While the others worshipped wherever they were, their false heathen deities. And then when the house of Israel go and the others come in, they were tried to learn to worship there, but they couldn't worship there. It wasn't true worship. The house of Judah goes bad and their worship's gone. But we can worship in the Spirit. The, 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 the word there to worship in the spirit. Notice what he says, verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit. The idea there is, isn't a capital S for Holy Spirit. This is when the Holy Spirit and your spirit are one. And your spirit is regenerated. You could be walking down and just get a thought about Christ and it's so wonderful. And there's nobody near you and there's no one around you or else you're in a crowded room and in your spirit you're just going, oh, Jesus, how wonderful you are. It's a difference. 
Now notice, twice he mentions the term, worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the spirit, and they that worship him must. See, here's a must of the scriptures. Do a study on it. Ye must be born again. He must needs go through Samaria. They must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There's some musts, absolutes. Now, if Jesus hadn't an absolute to go to Samaria, we wouldn't have this dialogue to, to speak about tonight, to rejoice in the Savior. If, if it came that we, uh, it was an absolute that we must be born again to see or enter the kingdom of God, well then, if there's no absolute, then sure, everything goes. But you see, what people don't realize is the gospel is very inclusive where all those who are in Christ are saved, but it can be exclusive. Everybody outside of Christ are lost. So look what he says twice. He mentions spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. So when Jesus mentions this, we have people and they worship in spirit. Our hearts are rejoicing. We've been regenerated, we're illuminated, we're made alive unto God. And so whether maybe we hear something in the Word or we read it in our private devotion, or whether we're in a place where there's a a nice chorus being sung sung or played and it touches our hearts or the words or the lyrics of an old hymn, or whatever it may be, or or we just we worship Him in our heart and our spirit is rejoicing. But what about truth? So if we worship him in truth, that puts out everything else that's false. All falsehood and lies. So we have to have a truth to know a truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But we have to know truth in worship. I don't know if I have time to do this tonight or not, but let's look at it for a moment. For example, the tabernacle in the temple in Jerusalem Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We were on Hebrews on Sunday night, strange, but we, it wasn't something that I'd done on purpose. It's just the way it fell. But the book of Hebrews was written because there were those who had got saved, and whether they came under immense pressure or whether they were struggling in their faith at whatever point, they started to look back to, well, maybe it's better if we went to the temple again. And let's be honest. How many of us do struggle in our faith at times? We all do. We all do. But notice this. The book of Hebrews was written for this. It was to say the temple, at this point, I, I don't think the temple has been destroyed at AD 70. I believe this is before it because temples mentioned that much and they're going, they're looking to go back to temple worship. And the idea of it is, the Lord through the pen of the writer saying, it's all been done in Christ. What are you doing? And the theme through the book of Hebrews is, Jesus is better than. Okay, so let me just give you some, some examples. Okay, 
First of all, it tells us, chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus is better than the prophets. First one, God, who at sundry times and divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here he's better than the prophets. The prophets have spoken, but lastly he sent his son. So when you read the the parables the Lord talks about, the, the husbandman, and he goes away to a far country, you know, and he, and he comes back again. And he, he, or before he comes back again, he sends people to gather off um, the land or the, or, or the fruit of it or whatever, and they mistreat them and treat them badly. He says, I'll send my son. This is it in a nutshell. So now Jesus is better than the prophets. Here's the final word. Okay, so then he, if you look at it, it says in verse 3, he's the brightness of his glory. He's the express image of the Father's person. What, the, the, the idea there, the word for image is the word character. It's where you and I get our English word character from. He's the express image of the Father's character. That's what it means. Um, you know, if someone used to say to someone, you know, you're a spit of your dad. You know, you just get on like him, you know. You look like him. That's the character. You have their character. Only here is a full expression of the Father coming from him. And so he's now the one. He brings him into glory. And he's, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. So here's his deity. He sat down when he, had, when he had by himself purged our sins. Here's his humanity. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he sat down in the place of power and authority, the right hand. God doesn't have a right hand as such like you and I have a right hand. The right hand means the place of power and authority. So he now sits in a place of power and authority at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? When he purged our sins by himself, he'd done that. On the cross, he's ascended into heaven. He's went through the heavenly tabernacle and now because he's there, he sat down. When you're finished your work, what do you do? You sit down. It's finished. That's why it says he has sat down in the place of power and authority. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things on earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's exalted. So Jesus is better than the prophets. Secondly, Jesus is better than the angels. Verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels. We could stop there and that's just it proven. But let's go on. As he hath been, hath been heard and obtained a more excellent name than they. Here's another one. He's got a better name than all. More excellent name. You know what he says to us when he was praying in John, uh, he starts praying sort of John 16 into John 17. He says, Father, I have manifested thy name unto them. And then he says, Father, thy name which thou hast given me. 
Jesus. Yeshua. He says, I've manifested it unto them. So he's a better name than all others. He carries the Father's name. He tells Moses that he will send my angel, capital A. Um, he says, my angel will go before Israel, he says. And, and that capital A means that it's the angel of God's immediate presence. It means the angel of, it's a theophany, a, an appearance of God, a manifestation of God, he says. And he says uh, that uh, you were to obey him. And uh, I'm paraphrasing for time's sake. He says, obey him, he says, for my name is in him. <laughs> my name, in other words, he's me. He is me. And here we see that the Hebrew writer saying that this one who said you're not going to Jerusalem nor up the mountain, this one who has God come down from on high, this one who is clothed, he expresses the Father. He's the Father's Son. He's now died for us. He's purged us from our sins. He's went to the grave. He's risen again the third day. He's ascended into heaven. And now he's seated down there to say the work is done. He's in a place of power and authority. His name is better than all others, and he's even better than the greatest of the angels of heaven. That's what this is saying. Unto which of the angels said he, at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be unto him a father, and he shall be unto me a son. Then, if you go to chapter 3, I'm just flicking across, chapter 3, he's better than Moses, the lawgiver. He's better than Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. (laughs) Who's he speaking of? Speaking of the Son of God. Speaking of Jesus. Moses built the house. What does he mean? Moses was part of the house. That is Israel. And he led them. He was, he, he was, yes, he was, a um, called of God to do so. But now he's saying, Jesus, his house is even greater. He's not only part of the house. He is the builder of the house. Can you see that? This is what he's saying. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses in as much as he who hath built a house hath more honour than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Speaking of Christ here. But Christ has a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we are Christ's house. And then if we go, he's better than Joshua. Chapter 4. We'll just skip through a few verses here because time's gone. Chapter 4. Let's run down to verse 8. Here's a little bit, something can be a bit confusing for some people. Verse 8 says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now see the word Jesus in verse 8. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ being spoken of there. <clears throat> okay? It is not Christ. Who he's speaking of there is actually Joshua. For example, the, the, the Hebrew name for, if you want to go back into Hebrew for Jesus, would be um, 
Yahshua, or Jehoshua. That's actually the same name. When you come into the Greek, it's Isus, where we get our English rendering Jesus from. So the word Jesus, for some reason, they have left, the translator left, Jesus in here should be Joshua. Joshua brought Israel into the rest, but they needed another rest because it was an earthly rest. But then he speaks about God's rest in Christ, so we have an eternal rest in Christ. Um, it's mentioned again in that tense, in uh, flick over, keep your finger there, flick over to Acts, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, please. Acts chapter 7. Let your eyes just run down to verse 45. <clears throat> this is Stephen before he's stoned. Stephen was stoned for giving a history lesson. Talk about taking your stone for Christ. He didn't even get the preach. He just took a history lesson for them. And they didn't like the truth of the history lesson. Verse 45. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. <clears throat> Pardon me, I read verse 44. Verse 45. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, or the nations, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. What is he saying here? He's taking them back again to when Joshua drove out the nations that were in Canaan land. So the word Jesus is actually Joshua. That's not the Lord Jesus there. And for reference, for reference, write down Psalm 95 and read it when you go home. And you build a reference with those as well for what had happened. Read those two chapters, Hebrews 4, and read Acts chapter 7, and then read Psalm 95. Okay, I'm moving on quickly. I want to try and close this here. Jesus is better than Aaron. Moses' brother, the high priest, than Aaron. Chapter 4, verse 14. Saying then, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So the high priest had to offer for his own sin and then for the sins of Israel. Okay? Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto, unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So Aaron was appointed by God. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and that he was, and was heard, and that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which 
he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the high priestly line was Aaron, his sons was Levitical. And then it comes down, it changes, it becomes Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek priesthood. That's another study altogether. But the Melchizedek priesthood is an eternal priesthood. So the one of Aaron, he had to go in and offer for his own sins, but Jesus doesn't. He's sinless. And then he's now in Melchizedek priesthood. Jesus is an eternal priesthood for us. But notice here, I just want to clarify something in verse 7. It says of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and that he and was heard, and that he feared. Now, opponents of the gospel, opponents of the word of God, will want to tell you, Jesus didn't come to die because of that verse. They will tell you that Jesus was strong, supplication and crying. He offered up in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, remove this cup from me. You know the story. Let's turn to John's gospel. Pardon me, Mark 14. Mark 14, just to show you something here. This is what uh, Hebrews 5 and 7 is speaking of here. Hebrews 5 and 7 is speaking of Mark 14. Okay, let your eye just run down. Let me find it. Okay, let your eye run down. To verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went, uh, went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thy will. So now they say, see, Jesus wanted the cup to pass from him. Jesus didn't want to do it. Jesus never came to die. Jesus was just so afraid. He didn't want to go through it when it came to it. That's not true, okay? When we go back to Hebrews 5 and 7, which refers to these times, or this time, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death. You see, they say, he's wanting the Father to save him from death. Now, see the word there, from, F R. O M. There's two words for the word from in the Greek text, okay? There's one word and it's called apo. English rendering would be A-P-O. Apo. It means out. It means from the edge of, okay? And there's another one called ek, E-K. And it means out from within. From the edge of or out from within. Let me give an example. So tonight we're having Bible study and I invite Kyle to the Bible study tonight. Yes, I'm coming, Ken, I'll see you there. And he comes right up to the front doors in there and he comes to those front doors and he just stands there 
and he looks in, and he turns his heel, and he walks away again, out into the street and away home. So I say to him the next time I see him, I thought you were coming to the Bible study. He says, well, I did. Well, I know I've seen you come to the doors, but you turned away and you walked away again. He wasn't really telling any lies because he did come to the actual building where we were holding it. That's the word apple. From the edge off. So what they're trying to say was that Jesus, because he cried in the garden, was getting to the edge of death. Oh, I'm being encompassed by death. Let me just get this far, Father, and let me walk away. Now, if the word apple was used in Hebrews 5 and 7, that's what the argument would be. But it isn't. It's the word ek. So Kyle has been invited to come to the Bible study and he comes right in like he has tonight and he's sat down beside his dad there and he's listening to the Bible study. So he's right in the middle. He's right in the heart. He's come right into the service. He's partaking in it. He's got his Bible open. He's reading. He's studying along with it. You see, he's right in the center of it. So the word in Hebrews 5 and 7 that he would save him, unto him that was able to save him from death. It wasn't save him from the edge of death that he would swoon even on the cross and leave. What Jesus was praying was this, as he was crying out as a man, this is what he was praying, Father, I know that I will go right into the, ach, the heart of death. I will go right into the heart. I will partake of the death. That's upon them. But you'll save me from it. That's it. From death. It's from out from within. He's right into death. And the father raised him in the third day and brought him out. That's the idea of that. So he's greater. Greater than all. I might do more next week. I've too much here. We'll do another five minutes, will I? Okay. So here we have, in chapter 5, Hebrews 5, verse 1, we have that Christ is greater than Aaron. He's sinless in verse 2. He doesn't have to um, have a sacrifice for his own sins then for the people. And he's eternal in verse 8. Okay? So Jesus is a better high priest. Turn to chapter 7. You say, what's this got to do with worship? It's got everything to do with it. Because where we worship, remember? Whom we worship and how we worship matters. This is the one we worship. This is the one who says we'll worship in our spirit. So in chapter 7, Here we have the Levitical, I just mentioned it briefly, the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. Okay? So verse 11 speaks of the Aaronic. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Okay? What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron for the priesthood being changed there is made of a necessity a change also of the law now what he's saying is now the law that was given 
That's being fulfilled in Christ. Our high priest has entered in to the heavens and there he's ministering for us. Why do you want to go back to that temple that's going to be destroyed? Why do you want to go and do that? So, next he's, he officiates in a better tabernacle. Chapter 9. I'm just skipping over these. Chapter 9. And verse 1. For verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. The word worldly doesn't give the idea of evil. It's not an evil sanctuary. The idea means it's on earth here. For there was a tabernacle made the first, wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. After that, the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, orange rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now, I think we've got that. We all know that, don't we? Verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So the Holy Ghost is poured out in the day of Pentecost. Now, he says, comes the time, a period of about 40 years was a time of testing and trial in Judah. Then comes AD 70, and the tabernacle or the temple is destroyed. Holy Ghost signified. This is what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Can you see that? Okay, yeah. Okay. Verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So when he speaks of the blood of bulls and goats and so on, and verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgression that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What is he saying is, all of this, Jesus shed his blood once and for all, it's not in an unbloody sacrifice of a mass in a Catholic church. It's not even in the it's not even in the, the, the it's not even the emblems that we would take as a remembrance of Christ in the bread and the wine on a Sunday or the red juices we would use on a Sunday. It's not in that. We're remembering what he's done. His it's not reshedding his blood. His blood was shed once and for all, never to be repeated again, and he's ascended into heaven and he shows himself to the Father for you and me. He says, There's the tabernacle. Listen, do you want to go to the temple? Do you know where the temple is? Well, we're the temple on earth. Do you know where the temple or the tabernacle is? 
See, when you get on your knees or you stand and worship, your heart rejoices. You're in the tabernacle before God. The throne of grace. That's the wonder about this. Now, I've got too much. I'm not doing all night. There's loads that keep me here all tonight with that. So the idea is that Jesus is better through the book of Hebrews. Now, why does it matter? It matters because when we look at who we worship, we have direct access into the throne room. The word boldly coming to the throne of grace is not arrogantly. It means you can have full assurance and confidence that he loves you as your father. He's your father. You can enter into his presence. We worship in spirit, no matter where we are. I mean, see if I'm standing in a park or a field somewhere, I would stand and just sing unto God or I would worship, even just thinking about him and my heart, the spirit in in me is worshiping. And here's the thing, I'm not just standing in the field worshiping. I'm actually conscious that I'm connected to heaven, right into the throne room of grace, right into it. When I'm praying for the sick, that's what I've, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. When I live my life, that's what I believe. So when Jesus says, the true worshippers, never getting the grumps. Look, I'm not saying how people should or shouldn't worship between them and God and their spirit. But do you see when you go to some churches, and it's like, if they crack a smile, half the doubt would fall off them. Where, where's the worship in the spirit? It's like, smile, I'll pay for the damage. You know, and it's like, I'm going, where's your heart before him? And then on the other extreme, I've seen a video of a, well, a, a church. And I'll be honest, I thought it was an A-club. Quite a big, large church in Northern Ireland. And someone wrote across to something like, Oh, God's glory, glory to God. And all I seen was people like in a nightclub. It was horrendous. I go, Where's the spirit? You see, you can be, if you want, you call yourself a Pentecostal if you want, and say, Well, we worship in the spirit. But a lot of them don't worship in truth. Because they don't know them. In truth, they're not depth in the word, grounded enough in the word. And people say, we worship them in spirit because, you know, we like to play instruments. No, listen, I love worship. But that's not really worship a man's spirit. It's from within. I could get a professional band to play here on a, on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, and we would think they're absolutely fabulous if they knew how to play. But you know what? There'd be no spirit professionalism. And then there are those saying, we're standing for the truth, you know, we're standing for the truth, you know, and they're ready to to take everybody out, you know. And there's no grace, there's no spirit. They're dead. So Jesus says, true worshippers. The difference. I worship in the spirit. And we'll have the truth of the word. You can't say I worship in the spirit and go and ecumenize with everybody else. And unfortunately, that's the label on 
I don't like to call it Pentecostals, but Charismatics. That's the label they have. We can all get together and just worship and have this big party. And we'll all stand with our hands in the air. And some of them will roll around the floor. And sure, you know what? Bring in everybody. Bring in Father Bob and, and uh, Elder Mormon in, in this way. And we should, we'll all just get together. We need to know who we're worshiping. Where we're worshiping. And how we're worshiping. We have to. Maybe I sound hard, do That's the truth. It's the truth. I want to be a true worshipper. I'm not saying I've got it all. I'm not saying we've got it all. I'm not saying we're right and everybody's wrong. I'm not saying that. But that's the pursuit that I want for CT. I want that for CT. I want to worship him in the spirit. I want to worship him in truth of the word. That's what I'm looking for. Let's pursue on.